let's go ahead and let's sing. Um, you guys are going to have to jump in for me and do this. But uh, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, let's, uh, let's sing together. Holy, holy, holy. Do that one more time and just really slow it down and just settle into the words, okay? Holy, holy. There's uh, many verses that talk about being silent before God as we wait. And as we hear the words spoken, your words that you've given to us about yourself, uh, clear away all the things that get in the way, the things that distract, the dust that's collected on our soul during the week. Um, Blow it out and cleanse it that your uh, word may be able to settle and to sink, to take root, and to give us a a fresh glimpse of all that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. 
Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult in everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Turn up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He's exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the, pillar of the crowd, in the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statue he gave them. O Lord our God, he, you answered them. You were our forgiving God to them, but an avenger of, the, of their wrongdoings. 
Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Psalms 146, 6. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion. To all generations, praise the Lord. Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he'd emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and 
In him all things hold together. Sorry, I lost my place. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Revelation 5, 7 through 14. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Psalm 57, verses 5 and 9 through 11. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I will give thanks to you, Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Whenever God uh, reveals himself, which is what the word is, um, there's always to be a response to it. So let's take a little time and just pray. If, if you feel so led, just stand where you are. Uh, prayers are praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Let's just um, use our voices to uh, praise it back to him. So anybody that wants to do that, just stand up where you are. And let's, uh, let's pray out loud.
Lord, we thank you for stepping into place and time and for making yourself known to us, for going to the lengths that you did to bring us into relationship again. Thank you for uh, your word that on a day by day you can speak into our lives, and we thank you above all things for Jesus, our living word, and the bread of life given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Appreciate uh, Jerry stepping in last week since I was heading out of town. Um, he was actually he was supposed to teach this weekend on the disciplines of the word. That's where we were going to be at in our series about reading and memorizing and studying those kinds of things. I'm probably going to just prepare a handout for you on that and give that to you. So this morning we're going to go back and we're going to pick up part two of what I started two weeks ago on the breath of God. Um, I'm covering a lot today, um, and not very thoroughly, and I'm not going to answer almost any of the questions that you have on these particular two areas, um, which means if you have a question, you have to ask. So um, I'm, I'm more than happy to dialogue about these things. There's a lot of questions in these two areas, um, in particular and next week as well that we cover this morning. So um, I'm just going to kind of lay out, here's where we're at and here's how we got there, but all the questions you have, do not even hesitate. And if I don't know the answer, I'll be happy to say I don't know, um, because there's so many things that we don't have a grasp on, but there's many, many things that we do, and so um, we will try to do as we walk along. If you are, uh, if you are doing the reading plan, um, we are, are through the New Testament in 40 days, um, you are at the halfway point. Um, if, uh, if you gave up weeks ago or you're not really sure where you're at anymore, don't worry about it. Like we said, read something every day. Just read something every day. Um, Lent started last week, so it's interesting that this week's reading is the Gospel of Matthew. begins tomorrow, um, so we're basically reading through the Gospel of Matthew in a week. If you haven't been doing any of it, this would be a great week to step in, just to, as we enter into this Lenten season, actually to take and just walk the entire Gospel of Matthew in one week. It'd be a great exercise and encourage you um, to do it. The Bible is meant to be read, right? The Bible is meant to be read. I saw this in the paper this morning. This was in Las Cruces, New Mexico. A New Mexico man is facing a battery charge after police said he repeatedly hit his mother with a Bible following a prayer session. The Las Cruces uh, Sun News reports that Ryan uh, Daly was arrested Saturday shortly after police said his mother escaped her son's beating and called police. According to the court documents, Daly's mother told officers she and her son were praying Saturday when Daly began yelling at his mother and asking her who owned her soul. Court documents say Daly then started hitting his mother um, with a Bible. Um, so that's not what it's for, just in case you had any questions about that. <laughs> so just a quick review of part one. We are, uh, as we move through these things, um, as we were talking about the breath of God, our vineyard doctrinal statement should be up here. Um, it goes like this. We believe that the 66 canonical books of the Bible are the verbally inspired word of God. Therefore, without error in the original writings, they constitute the only infallible authority for all matters of faith and practice. And those key words were canonical. We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. Verbally inspired, we hit that two weeks ago. Um, without error, we'll address that this morning a bit. Um, and then it talks about infallible authority. If it's God's, if it's God's speaking, is there authority and what he says, there's actually a chalkboard over here 
to write down. If there's a verse that you know God has spoken into your life that's to hold authority over you, you can write that down on the board there. Um, we looked specifically at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all Scripture is what? Breathed out. Um, we use the word inspiration, but it's really breathed out by God. Uh, it's profitable. It means it has value. It's, it, it makes a difference. It, it, it changes us and transforms us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The implication is, if I don't let the God's word speak into my life, um, I am incomplete. I'm not equipped for all the things that he's prepared beforehand for me to do. So we address the words verbal. It has to do with words. The words matter. We looked at the word inspired, which is God breathed, and we looked at what it meant when it said all scripture. We talked about why that includes both the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. We saw that uh, the word God breathed means that God breathed out the words. Literally, it's, it's breathing out. It's not breathing into the words as though he brings them to life. He does Spirit does do that, but it's not like they're just human words that God then breathes into him like he breathed into us and gave us life in, in uh, Genesis, but it's actually breathed out, and the direct object is the words. The words are given out by God himself. Um, God speaks in words. We looked at several different passages about that. He has chosen, besides creation and general revelation, and through his Son, which he's revealed himself, but he's also chosen to use words to speak his truth into our life, and he conveys truth and ideas through words. And then we saw, and this will overlap this morning as we walk through this, that the words of Scripture, because they're breathed up by God, they have divine origin. So the words themselves um, come from that. We will look at that a bit as we walk along this morning. Um, At my mom's memorial service last Monday, um, all the grandkids were there and great-grandkids were there. It was kind of a a neat thing. And uh, uh, one of my nieces, Rachel, is the oldest grandchild, um, got up and shared. And she said when she was 15, which is a while ago, she's like 34 now, I think it is. But when she was 15, my mom had asked her, says, Rachel, what would you like to have for your birthday? And she wanted two things. She wanted, there was some kind of designer bag. I don't remember the name of it, but it was whatever was big at the time. Very, very expensive designer bag she wanted. And she wanted a Bible. And uh, my mom got her both, those things apparently. And she was just sharing. She had the Bible because she was supposed to read my mom's favorite verse, um, she says, I have no idea what happened to that bag anymore, but I still have the Bible. Um, and it's used and marked up, and it makes a difference. Um, makes a difference. So we have this, what we talked about that second week, this great book, this, this book that has all these different writings in it that all come together to make one grand unified story from beginning to end. And it's a story that God invites us into. It's, it's a story that God breathed out because without it, we wouldn't have it to share something about his nature and his plan and his purposes for us. Um, so the question comes, how did, it get, how did we get this book, right? How did we get it? And the second question is, how does it get into us? Um, there's lots of people have Bibles, and it doesn't ever get inside. So um, how did we get the book, and how does it get into us? Um, we have, uh, after this week, we have three more weeks in this series, uh, primarily about... Um, We'll, we'll, I'll move on that in a minute. But there's four steps to um, how did we get it and how does the word get into us. Four steps. It's revelation, transmission, interpretation, and application. Revelation, transmission, interpretation, and application. So today we're going to finish up the revelation part. God revealed himself. Um, 
and we're going to look a little bit about the transmission, answering the question, how did we actually get it? How did it get to us in the first place? Um, besides Barnes & Noble or whoever sold it to us, how did it get to us? And then the last three weeks of the series, beginning next week, we're going to be looking more about getting the word into us. And so next week is going to be about interpretation um, and different ways we do that so we can begin to understand it. Um, seeing, actually learning how do we see the truth in the word. Um, we can read it and it doesn't penetrate sometimes. And then the last two weeks we'll look at application. And there's basically two parts to that. It's um, getting the truth of his word into our hearts. But then it's not supposed to stop there. It's getting the truth that's in our hearts now out into the world. Two parts to that. So application always has two parts. Getting that truth into our hearts and then getting that truth out into the world. And we'll look at that in the last two weeks of the series. So Revelation, we are on here. Finishing up as we started two weeks ago. Revelation is disclosure, unveiling, um, taking the cover off in a sense. Um, As God is transcendent, unless he unveiled himself, we wouldn't know he was there. So God reveals himself through all these different ways, and that's what revelation is, a disclosing of his truth. We actually here claim that the Bible is actually the written record of God's revelation given directly from himself um, by the agency of inspiration through human writers. It's a great, it's a pretty remarkable statement to make, that we actually have a book that we claim is a written revelation of about God, but not just about him, but actually given by God himself. It's a little bit long, but I want to read. It kind of summarizes where we've been going from John MacArthur. He says this, The content of the Bible is revelation. The process by which that content was written down is called inspiration, or God breathed. It wasn't a high level of human activity. It wasn't even a high level of religious human activity. Men were in the process, but it did not originate with them. It didn't come from their desire and their will. They were used as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit and enabled to speak from God. They spoke divine words. God used them. It was their personality. It was their background. Some of their insights, their experiences, their perceptions. But every word was the word of God. Um, By the way, that's a miracle that God could actually... We got 66 books, and they all are different because they're brought through different people, and they contain all their personality and all their little quirks and all that kind of stuff, and yet somehow God gets his words exactly as he designed to reveal himself, exactly how he wanted to do it. It's a miracle to have that. Men, they were used and carried along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's what the scripture says. So when you pick up your Bible, you're not reading the words of men. You're reading the word of God that was written by men who are moved along in the process by the power of the Spirit. Not apart from their personalities, not apart from their experiences, not apart from their vocabulary, not apart from their heart and passion and compulsion, but integrating all of that into the power of the Spirit of God and never compromising the truth that every word came from God. So God spoke in the Old Testament to the fathers by the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God has spoken in the New Testament by his son in the Gospels and then about his son in the rest of the New Testament. The process by which God gave us that revelation is inspiration. God putting his revelation in, as it were, the hands of men to be written down, um, first to be spoken and proclaimed, and then written down as they're energized and carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the key question is, what is the nature of the revelation? I think it's pretty obvious what we're saying. What's the nature of it? Where is it at? 
The answer is found in the character and nature of God and from what the Bible says about itself. Scripture in the original manuscripts, which we don't have, but in those, when it first came off of Paul's pen, when it first came off of Matthew's pen, or Isaiah's scripture in the original manuscripts, when interpreted according to the intended sense, they speak truly in everything they affirm. It's a big statement. The scriptures, the original manuscripts that we have in their words, speak truly in everything that they affirm. And so because it's God's breathed, its origin is God himself, that interestingly enough, it makes the words divine words. Remember we talked about the fact that there are some that says this is God's words. There's some the Bible is God's words itself. Some people say the Bible contains the words of God. Much of it's not, um, but it contains it. Others, it's a human book that God somehow brings to life for us. We're on the first side of things here. It's where we teach from here at the Vineyard. That's God's actual words given to us. They have divine origin, so the words themselves are divine. When it says God breathed, it's speaking to its origin, where it's coming from. What we have comes from God. Recall 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul says, We thank God constantly for this, that you, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the words of men, but what it really is, the words of God. We can disagree and have all different ideas, but Paul makes it really clear. He actually says when he preached out the words and they heard him preach, they didn't just get his words. They actually were getting the very, very words of God. Paul somehow knew and had a sense that what he was bringing to them was actually God's spoken words to them. Pretty strong statement. Second Peter 1, 20, 21. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have in the Word of God. And we looked at that two weeks ago about the whole Word falls underneath that category of those two places. The implication, if God speaks it, and God says something, if God is standing here, he's here, but let's say he just shows up, okay, and um, in a very, very tangible sense, and he begins to speak, or he writes something down, I'm going to grab a hold of that paper, um, because what I've got is the very words of God, and I can trust them. Um, and so if it comes from God, if it's the divine origin, the implication is what we call inerrancy. It means the words are correct. The words are right. The words are without error because God doesn't have error in him. Um, we can all say lots of true things, and it comes through some very imperfect writing, doesn't it? Imperfect words. Um, even when we have conversations with each other, um, sometimes we get, we'll get the truth across, but it doesn't always come across very well, and it takes a lot of conversation to finally get it down. God himself speaks truthfully in all that he says. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. Psalm 119, verse 16. These are just a couple, and they're all over the scriptures. It says, The sum of all of your words are truth. Titus 1, verses 2 and 3. God, who never lies, promised these things before the ages began. And at the proper time, he manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted. Interesting. Um, Paul says here to Titus, he says, God who never lies, all of his words are true. He has unveiled them and manifested them at this time through the very preaching Paul does. Um, again, strong words. Um, we hope that when we share that somehow God's word get through, right? 
But to say what you're hearing this morning, these are God's very words for you. Um, it's just we don't have that. The Holy Spirit's our teacher, but the New Testament apparently was exactly that. So what do we mean by inerrant? It means that the words are the very words of God intended. Um, what he brought through the writers, um, without grabbing hold of their hand and helping them write, he moved through them to be able to put down, spoken or written, exactly the words God intended because the words needed to convey something very important, which is the truth of God. He was revealing his character and his ways, and he wanted to make sure it came out right. It does not mean that the words were dictated, although sometimes they are. We have places in Scripture that says, God says, write this down, and he tells them exactly what to write. It doesn't mean to take it too literalistic. In other words, um, we can um, words have flexibility, you know, um, and we have all sorts of sayings that we say, and we don't mean them to take them literally. And there's lots of things in the Bible that take literally. There's other things that are expressions. Um, so people often say, well, it's not near because then you have to do this. And they'll come up with crazy ideas of things the Bible says to do, just not treating words correctly. It doesn't mean to take it literalistically. It accounts for normal language, the way all people speak and write. God somehow brought that to us. If he didn't, we'd have a very strange book. I mean, the Bible is strange enough as it is, right? It's got enough stuff that's kind of like, what's going on here? If it, if it weren't just common language, we would really be confused. It accounts for places of precision and also lack of precision. By that, I mean, some people say, well, the Bible is not inerrant because it said Jesus was three days in the grave, and he wasn't exactly three whole days. There weren't three full 24-hour days down to the very second. That's That's making language be precise when it's not meant to be precise. So if you say, how long were you in Michigan? I say, I was gone for a week. Well, everybody gets that, right? That's uh, gone a week. I wasn't actually gone exactly a week. Um, or I, 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 was, I, was, I was out for a couple hours, and that's, or I was out for two hours. Maybe I wasn't exactly two hours. So the Bible is the same way. It's, it's sometimes it, the, the language is very precise. I mean, there's places where it's talking about down to the half day, and there's other places where it's just like us. It's, it's not precise language. We have to distinguish between those. Issues of history, science, and conflicting accounts. When we say it's inerrant, we're saying that when it speaks to science, it speaks truthfully. When it speaks to history, it speaks truthfully. Um, when there's apparent contradictions, there's an answer somewhere in God's great mind to those things. As a matter of fact, if you, I've, I think I've heard just about every single one. Um, there's some we don't know. There's some that are confused. There's some that were brought up years ago and have been shown even through archaeology or through history or through other books that, God, what the Bible says was true all along. What a surprise that is. Um, and, there's, uh, and there's some that are just apparent. There's just a little simple reading um, makes things pretty clear. And so um, when it speaks to those things, it speaks truthfully. Interesting, um, if you were to go to the Internet you would get the idea that science is absolutely without fail has disproved the Bible to being true because it's shown that it absolutely speaks untruthfully to the things of science. But there is nothing that clear. It just isn't. Um, and so, like I said, if you've got questions about that, I'd be happy to help you wrestle through those together. But where it speaks, it speaks truthfully. By the way, that also means when it's rightly interpreted. We often take our interpretations and we say they're inerrant. They're not. Um, mine are, but nobody else's are. So we'll look at that next week, but it's the scripture, the words we have. God speaks truthfully. He's put them out for us. Now, we've got to do something with them, and we get it right sometimes, and sometimes we don't. But we'll look at that next week. 
but the text that we have is exactly what God intended to put into our hands so that we can trust what we have. So that goes to the next question here about transmission. Do we actually have an accurate and reliable text before us? Um, Considering it's an old book, um, are we sure we've got an accurate copy? Um, Much of the Old Testament was passed along orally for a long period of time, which is what they did. It was an oral tradition. Eventually, it went into writing. The New Testament, perhaps some of the Gospels were originally parts were passed along orally, but eventually put in writing. The rest of it was all, it's a written document. Paul wrote letters, um, so those were a little bit more clear. But eventually, it all comes down into a written format, and God oversaw that. So um, we, don't have the, um, we don't have the original ones. It would be kind of cool. Um, we don't have Paul's actual first copy he made. And so the question comes, how did we get these? Well, people, um, so Paul would send a letter to the church at Colossae. It was meant to be passed around. Well, they didn't want to give up their copy, so somebody copied it down and passed it along to somebody else. Um, if I were to write a little note here and pass it around and everybody, um, first person copies it and then they took their copy and copied, everybody copied it, we all copied from the same document, um, and then we compared them, guess what? They wouldn't all look the same. I just guarantee you they would not all look the same. Um, because when you're copying things over and over again, um, we are human people, we make mistakes. So we skip a letter, um, somebody scribbles and you can't really tell what it is, so you try to figure it out and come up with your best idea about it. Um, we get the word order wrong. I, I flip word order in sentences all the time, it's just something I do. Um, so those kinds of things happen when we copy it. So how does that affect the Old Testament and New Testament? Well, the Old Testament, as I said, was copied over and over and over again as they passed it along. Um, but by Jesus' day, the, the text that they had of the Old Testament was considered inerrant. There was absolutely no questions about the Old Testament text. As a matter of fact, they believed if you got one letter out of place, you were in trouble from God. So they were, um, they, they were obsessed over making sure they got it right. So it's accurate to the very word. Jesus himself held the Old Testament and appealed to it as authority and held to it as authoritative. Um, but the, in the New Testament, we have all these manuscripts. Basically, each time a copy is made, it's a manuscript. And we have pieces of these manuscripts, but not whole ones. And so um, when there's, uh, if you take two manuscripts, I've got two pieces of Paul's letter. And if there's a difference between one and another, we call it a variant. So some of your Bibles at the bottom will have a little note by verse, and it'll say a variant, and it'll have a different word. And so what they would do is if they took the two and they looked at them and they had a, a difference, they would then look at a third one and see which one it seemed to favor. And then they look at a fourth one and a fifth one and a sixth one. Um, so like I said, if I had one copy of something and everybody made a copy from my copy, um, we could look at everybody's copies, see where all the mistakes were made. Eventually, we'd be able to figure out exactly what was originally here because everybody, most people get it right. We could figure out who put the wrong letter in there and who skipped a word, and we could figure that out. So multitudes of manuscripts makes it easy to figure out exactly what the original looked like. Um, and that's what we have in the case um, of the New Testament. Almost all the variants are weeded out by the incredible number of copies we have. And then the variants are still remaining, like any of your book of Mark will say, some people think the last verses were there, some people say they weren't. Um, they don't affect doctrine at all. And I did not bring them this morning because you can look them up on the Internet. They're all over the place. You've probably seen them, but you've seen those charts that show how many manuscripts we have of ancient books and how recent they were to when they were written and comparing it to the New Testament. So you get like Plato and uh, the most recent copies of manuscripts we have. And manuscripts are just pieces of it. 
it's like 400 years from when it was first written to the next manuscript piece. And then we have like 40 copies of it, which is a pretty small amount. So if you have a small number of manuscripts, it's hard to determine what the original was. Um, so it's like 400 years. Some of those are hundreds of years. Um, some are even longer, uh, books that we would say absolutely historical documents, and we'd hold to them. In the New Testament, we have manuscripts going back to 100, actually. Now, they're originally dated about 140. They're putting them at 100 A.D., which is when John was probably still alive himself and have pieces of going back as far as that first generation. And we have, so it's less than 40 years, less than a generation, and we have like 5,500 something, 5,500, 5,000-something 5, manuscript pieces of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if you look at the chart, compared to other ancient writings, the New Testament is not even in the same category. There's so many manuscripts. So what that comes out to is that we're able to piece together a very reliable document as far as the text that we have and has been given to us. Um, so our present Hebrew and Greek texts are, um, are accurate. The next question comes up, how do we get them all together? So Paul sent out a letter here. He sent out a letter there. John wrote something about Revelation. I don't know who he gave it to, the seven churches. Um, how did we get them all together? So that's compiling, and we call that the canon. The whole Bible together we call the canon. As I said before, the Old Testament canon, the books in the Old Testament, were well-established and um, upheld. There was basically no disagreement at all about the Old Testament by the time of, the time of Jesus. Um, so what we have today is what Jesus would have had, just a little bit of a different order. Um, interesting, the Old Testament is quoted as divinely authoritative in the New Testament almost 300 times. Um, so the Old Testament, both in the Hebrew version and the Greek Septuagint version, were clearly established without any dispute by the time of Jesus. Um, interesting, in the New Testament, um, officially, there was not an official statement that the 27 books we have are the 27 books in the New Testament until like 393. So we often say, well, how did that happen? That's like almost 400 years later. So it means people had no Bible until then. Well, they didn't have a altogether bound nice in a nice uh, little cover like we have today. Um, but they were, the letters were all out there. Um, so officially, they were declared as being the scripture in 393, but it actually happened much sooner than that. Um, we already saw that the New Testament and its writers considered many of the scriptures in the New Testament as scripture already. Paul himself says that the household of God was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as cornerstones. The apostles spoke authoritatively in the early church, as Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says this, We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by him. And we impart these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So we have the writings of the New Testament right from the very, very beginning being identified as scripture. Interesting, we also think it was way later that they started thinking about these being scripture passages. Right when they were being written, they were considering them scripture. The churches were receiving them as scripture. They were reading them as scripture. When they got a letter from Paul, they didn't think, well, that's nice, we got a little letter from Paul, and then when we were done reading, you crumple it up and toss it out. They, they understood already that what they were getting was actually divinely authoritative. Um, and so they cared for them as such. And acceptance of the books was actually really early. Within one generation of the apostles, every New Testament book in our present list had been quoted by an early church father. And within a couple of generations of that, nearly every single verse 
in our present New Testament was incited in one form or another in the over 36,000 citations by the early church fathers. This is before they were ever compiled together. The books and letters were already accepted in being passed around, and what happened in several centuries later is they actually just acknowledged what everybody already knew was true. Um, and the reason they did that is um, as long as nobody's challenging something, there's no reason to, to do anything, right? So um, it's like with our kids. You don't make up rules when they're not challenging them anyways. If they're all just doing fine, it's good. But when they break something, do something, now we need to come up with a plan here. And so we come up with a, a, a rule. Same thing in the early church. Um, much of the doctrine of the early church has developed because there was heresy. People had different ideas that were wrong. And they had to figure out, well, what do we do with this wrong teaching? And it forced the church to think through what they believed. And Marcion, the guy, he came around 100, 140 A.D., um, was a heretic. He had some crazy ideas. And he came up with a list of the New Testament books, and it wasn't the right list. And um, because he was a heretic, the church said, we've got to establish what this is about. We need, to, um, we need to respond to the things that are happening. So that was why they began to compile and actually talk about what it is. And despite what you might read other places, the 27 books, other than Hebrews, James, and I think Second Peter got disputed for a little while, all the rest of them were absolutely accepted right from the very, very beginning. And when they actually compiled them at the end, it was just basically acknowledging what everybody already knew um, was true. The core list of 27 books shows up by the mid-2nd century with Irenaeus. Um, we have a Latin translation of all those books by AD 200. Um, as I said, from the early church fathers alone, um, looking at the books they quote, we can come up with a list even earlier. Um, the canon did not determine scripture, but rather recognized scripture that was already held. The council did not give the books authority. The books already held authority as God's word. They just acknowledged that they were there. Um, a couple of objections come up with that, just really briefly here as we wrap this up. Um, it's easy to look at the going, well, gosh, this, it was just a bunch of humans who were figuring out which books they liked and which books they didn't like, and so who knows if they got it right, you know? Um, but the fact is, if we believe God divinely brought out his God-breathed words to give to us, then we have to continue the miracle that God actually oversaw them to make sure that we got what we're supposed to have. And guess what? It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of faith. You, there's, there's no proving that. Um, you can look at all the information. You can look up the scholarly works about it. It comes pretty clear, but it ultimately becomes a matter of faith. Um, or do we receive that or not? And um, that's a step that we have to take. When we uh, look at just the human part of it, it ignores the providential work of the Holy Spirit. Um, if God truly revealed the divine text, would he not also preserve it for us? Um, and like I said, that's a call to faith. One quick thing about the other books that we often, there's some apocrypha books um, that we people often ask about, and there's some other um, New Testament writings, uh, gospel writings, so people ask about that. Interesting, the apocryphal books were never accepted by the Jewish nation as part of the Old Testament ever. And so um, when Jesus came along, those were not a part of it. There's some benefit to them. There's some great history there. Um, and then the, uh, in the New Testament, the, um, other, there's a bunch of other different books that were written, given names of apostles, and you've got different gospels. Um, they never showed up in these lists um, there. They were not quoted as scripture. They lacked apostolic connection. And as a matter of fact, I've read a number of them. Just reading them, the very nature of the book is different. You can just tell right off the bat, there's just something different about these um, as opposed to when we read our actual 
scriptures. And then lastly, just because I get this question all the time, people often ask, what translation are we supposed to use? So we say we've got the right words in the gr- Greek and Hebrew, but I don't have one of those. So um, some, somebody, some other guy over in some of the Christian Mecca of the world, like Wheaton or Grand Rapids, Michigan, they, they came up with these translations <laughs> that, that now what do we got with these things? So what are they? So just a couple things. There's word-for-word translations. Um, those are translations where they try to take the the actual word in Greek and Hebrew, and transfer it into an English word. You can't do that perfectly because there's not a word-for-word connection for everything, but in general. So they're a little harder to read sometimes, um, but that would be like the New American Standard Bible, King James Bible to try to do that. Um, English Standard Version, which I've been using lately, are all word-for-word. Um, then there's dynamic equivalent, or they're trying to take what's the thought here, and let's make sure we communicate the thought. Um, of that, and that would be like um, the New Living Translation does that. Interesting, the New International Version, which many of you use, is kind of a combination of word for word and thought for thought. Um, the danger of thought for thought is that they get it right a lot of the time, but still, there's some interpretation there. They have to figure out what is this guy really trying to say. Um, and I'd rather do that myself and get it wrong myself than have somebody else do it for me. But um, that's that's what's the idea there. But they're they're beneficial, good translations. And then lastly, there's a paraphrase, which is just trying to put it into English in a way, and there's lots of interpretation that goes there, but just trying to smooth it out and just kind of communicate it as best for us. Um, the Living Bible, the message is basically a thought for thought and a bit of a paraphrase together. Um, there's nothing wrong with those, by the way. Um, they're not necessary for studying, but there's times when you, you'll read one of those pastors and those and you go, wow, they got it right. You could just tell it just got it right, um, and they open it up. So I encourage you to make use of use of all that. So the question comes here at the end is, why is all this important? Why are we, you know, Paul over and over tells Timothy, don't argue about words and don't get wranglings and grumblings, and all these kind of things going, why are we talking about inerrancy? It's such a controversial thing, you know, that you tell me these words are actually without error. Um, why is that important? Why is it important? One reason it's important because it's talking about the very source and nature of the word that we have is not just a book, um, but its source is the transcendent God himself. And that matters. Um, that matters to us. It, it makes a difference how we look at it. Second of all, it has to do with its trustworthiness. When, when we read it, can we actually trust what it's saying? Um, is it going to lead us astray? Um, does, it, does, it, does it accurately talk about the nature of life and the world that we live in today so that we can actually understand it? Is it trustworthy? If it came from God, it is. If it didn't come from God, it's not. Um, it may get it right sometimes, it's going to get it wrong sometimes. So it matters how we understand it, because if it doesn't come directly from God, then it's not trustworthy. Um, next, it has to do with authority. When God speaks, people listen. Um, even in the Bible, sometimes people listen and they walked away, but they did listen. And um, the Bible itself, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but it doesn't hold authority. It's a book. But because it's spoken by God, it speaks authoritatively into our life. God is the one who has authority over us. And then he's given us his words in order to communicate something of himself. And so understanding where it came from, when I read it and it convicts my heart, I've got to do something about that. It holds authority over me to respond to it. And we're going to look at that in a couple of weeks. And lastly, because of its source, it makes impact on us. It makes impact um, I, I know of several people who came to Christ just hearing the very word. They didn't have anybody share the gospel, nothing. They just heard the word read, and it convicted their heart, and they gave their life to him because the word makes impact on us. 
And it does so because it's a miraculous book. It's a book that flows from the very very mouth of God. Um, No matter how we may treat it, that's the book that we have um, before us. So like I said, next week we're going to look at interpretation, um, how to get that word in us. And then the last two weeks we're looking at um, letting the word penetrate our hearts, the word that does that for us, and then getting it out into the world as well. As we study the word and interact with it and read it and interpret it, remember we said the primary focus is supposed to be God and his glory. If we read it and we don't get there, we missed it. That's the primary focus of it. And it's also about the grand story of Jesus, God incarnate, bringing redemption and restoration in this place, which is why every week we gather around this table to remember that God himself actually came here in human flesh and walked among us And that is our greatest revelation of God himself in our midst, the revelation of his son through us. Um, What we're going to do now is, um, this is usually our time for communion and singing. We're going to do it a little different. Um, In just a moment, uh, a video is going to play just to kind of focus our hearts on what God's done for us and um, his redemption into our life. When the video is done, I I talked to four people. They're going to, guys are going to come up here and they're just going to start serving communion today. Rather than coming forward, we're going to pass it out. If, um, if you need the gluten-free, just get up from where you're at, and you have, you're, you're welcome to go to the side table and take communion over there. But otherwise, as um, soon as the video is done, they're going to begin passing out communion this morning. Just take a piece off um, and dip it in, take it, and then serve the next person next to you. And while that's going around, I'm going to read um, from the book of Mark about Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. So just let that story freshly settle upon you. Um, it'll be quiet. You'll just be hearing my voice. Um, just listen. Listen for God speaking the truth of what he did for us and to us. And when we're all done with that, um, we'll sing a song and, and make our way out. Um, Lord, so work in us. We thank you for your word. Um, we thank you above all for your son who um, came and rescued us and brought redemption. And we just want to celebrate it together around the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. His words to us brought through his uh, servant, Mark. It says, they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seen Peter warming himself 
She looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. And he said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. And he said, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. And so Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one of the prisoners for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do what he usually did for them. And he answered them and said, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again and said, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now the soldiers led him away inside the palace, and they called together the whole battalion. They clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to be crucified. They compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read this, The King of the Jews. And when they crucified him, two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another and said, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were being crucified with him also reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. 
And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, and he said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah, and someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine. They put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And then Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed out his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw the way in which he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. And when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening was come, since it was the day of the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Well, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, so summoning the centurion, he asked whether he is already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, he wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, and Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. Couldn't just quiet our hearts for a moment. Wonder even as the communion continues to go around, if a couple people would just be willing to stand up and specifically give thanks for the gift of redemption that we have. A few people would just do that, and that'd be great.
Lord, we thank you that um, you created this world and you breathed into us the breath of life designed for purpose and relationship with you and to give you glory. And we give you thanks that when we turn from that, you came here and you breathed out your last um, for us. And then you breathed out your word so that we could know you and be restored to fellowship with you and the life that you meant um, to grant upon us. We give you thanks for that. Um, even as we go out this morning, Lord, um, may we be people redeemed and people of the word. May we go out with your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and stand with me. And let's, uh, let's sing the doxology together. Nice and slow. If you, if you know harmony, go for it, okay? So let's, let's make, the, make the walls reverb a little bit as we do this, okay? Here we go. Praise God from Lord, send us out through these doors into the beauty of this day with the praise of God on our lips and the life um, within our hearts. And uh, sing that out through us to a world that needs to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen.